Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In some ways, this sermon will be a little bit different. It's for Paul, covering a little bit more than you might be used to. That's because it was a, a sermon I did on deployment, and we did a, a series in 1 Corinthians, and we got passages, and so this is the chunk that I got. And one of the reasons that I'm preaching some single sermons is because the Lord in this province, I was sick and pushed off the Jonah series, and so now we're just preaching a couple single sermons until we get to preach about Jonah, which will be mid-November in the morning, and then, and then start the series. So let us go ahead and read. We'll be starting in verse 12, going through 34. Pay attention to the hope of the resurrection. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How could some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then perhaps our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, where he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule never already in power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he's accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are in subjection to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. There was a guy named Fred, and he liked to hunt birds. So he got himself a bird dog. His name was Gracie. He goes to the bird blind, um, shoots a bird down over the water, and says, Gracie, fetch. It's a new dog. And to his surprise, Gracie gets up, walks across the water, grabs the bird, walks right back across the water, drops it. He's very surprised. So he shoots another bird. Gracie, fetch. 
And easy as you please, Gracie gets up, runs across the water, grabs the bird, comes back. Does this the whole time out. Fred's thinking about this. On his drive back, he starts to laugh. See, Fred had a friend named Jim, and Jim is known for being the ultimate pessimist. Jim can't say anything good about anything. He says, I got it. Jim's going hunting with me next week. So, Fred and Jim go hunting, out to the bird blind, shoots a bird. Fred says, Gracie, fetch. Gracie does her thing, she walks across the water, gets the bird, comes back, drops it. He's looking at Jim, doesn't move a muscle. At the end of their time, they're driving back, and Fred really can't contain himself. He says, you know, Jim, did you notice anything about my dog? And he said, yeah, yeah, I did. She can't swim. (laughs) So why do I tell you that story besides the fact that it's a bit funny? Because it's a parable of someone who saw something incredible but refused to acknowledge its significance. Now right before this passage, in the beginning of the chapter, the Apostle Paul provides powerful evidence for the bodily resurrection that Jesus did physically rise from the dead. But there are some people who, in essence, said, so what? Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. I'm not even sure it matters. What's the big deal? And of course, now the Apostle Paul, he saw the risen Jesus. He came and turned Paul's world upside down. Paul thought the resurrection was a hoax, and he's going over and imprisoning uh, Christians in other parts, uh, in other towns, and Jesus appears to him in a burst of light, knocks him on the ground, says, I am real, follow me. So Paul, whose experiences says not only is the resurrection true, but it makes all the difference in the world. In fact, he says, Jesus' past resurrection gives you a present purpose for your life. Jesus' past resurrection gives you a present purpose for your life. And what I wanted to do is ask the same question that people back then did. So what? What difference does it make if Jesus was raised from the dead? Paul says, resurrection means three things. There's one for each of the paragraphs. So let's dive in. First of all, verses 12 and 19, he says, no resurrection, no hope. There's no resurrection, there's no hope. Now there's an objection beneath this so what question. Many people just simply didn't believe that Jesus came back from the dead. You know, Paul, dead people don't come back to life. This throughout the history has been a central objection to the message of Christianity. It's pretty understandable. Kids, do you know of anyone who has come back from the dead after dying in this history? No. And, you know, it's, it's not just a modern enlightenment problem. Of, this is hard to believe. Back then, people saw death a lot more than they did. They know that dead people stay dead. That's how it works. That's why Paul spent those first 11 verses saying this, this wasn't fake, it wasn't psychological wish fulfillment, it wasn't a hallucination, it was a physical embodied fact. It is true. And now he's going to switch more to the feelings. Not only is it true, but you should want it to be true. You see, Jesus' resurrection really matters. The people in Corinth were saying, well, you know, there is no resurrection of the dead. To which Paul gets to say, no resurrection, no hope. Okay, you, you don't believe there's a, a resurrection of the dead. Let's just try a little thought experiment. And he, he has this series of if-then statements, six times. Right? If-then. Think about the implications of what you're saying. If there is no resurrection from the dead, 
then Christ the Messiah has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. And Paul uses similar words in this chapter to talk about lack of purpose, to be empty or to be meaningless. Six times, these three words. And if Jesus is in the tomb, he's saying, everything that we taught you, kids, everything that you've learned from your parents, it's hollow. It's meaningless. It doesn't have any hope. Worse, in 15, we are said to be misrepresenting, literally, false prophets of God. Never mind what Jesus says about resurrection. Paul says, we, we're preaching you that he can offer you eternal life. And we're, it's, we're lying if it's not true. But it gets even worse. Verse 16. If Christ is not raised from the dead, there's no forgiveness. You're still in your sins. There's a holy God whose justice must be done. The only one to take the wrath for your sins is you. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead. That's over. Verse 17. And then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. By sleeping, Paul means death. To, believe, to be in Christ means to, be, to believe in him, to be connected. If Jesus is rotting in a tomb somewhere, then everyone who believed in him shares the same fate as the Messiah that they believed in. Paul says, okay, let's just let's look at this from a different angle. Just grant for a moment that there's, there's no resurrection. Um, this life's all it is. Then he says, I want you to stop what that means for a minute. Think about it, what it's like. This is, you just get one shot. Today we call it YOLO. That's it. No death, or no resurrection, no hope. And this asks a lot of questions. What if it's not true? What if the beauty of this world stops at the grave? What if relationships end at the grave? It's hard for us not to talk about that the people that we love, our family, our friends. Elizabeth and I we just celebrated 14th anniversary. I already say we're going on 15 years. But our, the closest relationships, to be brutally honest, are ended at the grave. We might influence a generation of people, maybe two beyond us. But soon, very soon, we will all be dead and no one will remember. It's in vain. Paul says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There is no resurrection. The people that you knew, the people that you worshipped with, loved and lived and laughed, he says, they're gone forever. It's all pointless. And there is no ultimate meaning. And that is actually what people who are honest outside the faith often grapple with. Listen to the words of someone who believes there is no God. She's very smart. She's an analytic philosopher and a convinced atheist. But she's honest enough to write about what she wonders at night, sometimes. How can it be that this world is the result of an accidental Big Bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that every life, beginning with my own, my husband's, my child's, and spreading outward, is cosmically irrelevant? I think Paul would answer her gently with another if-then. If there is no God and no resurrection, then yes. Life is cosmically irrelevant. If the dead are not raised, as he says at the end, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That is it. Now, there may be some of you, and if not here, you certainly know someone who's thinking, but wait a minute. 
I don't know if there is a God, but my life does have purpose. And I would say, well, I'm, I'm glad for you. I'm, I wouldn't wish misery on anyone. But I would argue that's because there is a God and you're living in his world. And even though if you don't acknowledge him, he's still giving you that purpose. And if you know someone, you could say, hey, yeah, I want you to be brutally honest here. It depends on the conversation. But if you have a good, deep conversation, you, you, you find this cause very meaningful and it's a worthy cause. But if death ends this life, what does that do to the purpose that you have? Aren't all the good things and meaning in this life cosmically irrelevant? No resurrection? No hope. But Paul doesn't stop there. He, he drops the if-then thought experience and breaks in with literally, but now. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So what does this mean? It means that Christ's resurrection means your resurrection. If you belong to Jesus, he is the first fruits of your new life. Now, first fruits. What's this first fruits term that he's talking about? It's a harvest term. Think about what it would be like before you know, the days of refrigeration and canning and, and, and all kinds of food preservation. You, know, you would lived off dried, salted, smoked, somehow preserved food. And as the months would go on, the food would get worse and older and less tasty. And you were just waiting for the spring to come around and you could get the new, um, the new grains and the animals that were born. You could actually think about the crops maturing in the field. You're eating this really dry, not very appealing food. And you couldn't just wait to go out and just pick the first of that harvest. Tastes so fresh, looks so good. And overseas, we would get these boxes of peaches. In Kuwait, you know, we got, we got, some, we got a good bit of fruit. Some of it was good, some not so much. Um, but these boxes, these, these, these peaches just always looked wonderful. And every once in a while, I'd grab one because they managed to look good in life, but somehow at the same time be rubbery and crunchy. I don't know how they did it. And I was grateful for the access to fruit, but I, I just learned to leave the peaches alone and thought, well, you know, there's a time when I'm going to be coming back home and it might even be peaches when it's, when it's really soft and it's fuzzy. You ever had a, a fresh Jersey peach and you can, you can kind of smell it and you take that first bite and, and it kind of dribbles down your mouth and you can kind of feel the, the tingle on your tongue. Is anyone getting hungry yet? Right? That's, that's the first fruits. And it's special. Literally, first fruits were the firstborn of the harvest, sometimes referred to someone who was the firstborn or the, the first converts in an area. We, it later on talks about Gaius as being literally the first fruits, the first Christians in Achaia. But also, just as important, the first fruits were a promise of more to come. So, one of my favorite fruits in the area is, is strawberries, and we make strawberry shortcake. And, I love to go out and pick those first strawberries out when, when you have the farms and you can do that. You know what's maybe just as good as getting that first batch is knowing that there's still another month of strawberries, right? The first fruits are a promise of more to come. So why do we need the first fruits of the resurrection? Well, because of the death of the world. And as I, as I read through this passage, it's, it's very dense. Verses 21 through 28, it's basically the spark notes of the whole drama of the rescue story. It has, it has Adam references. It's talking about how, how God made Adam the first fruits of the creation and he was the firstborn son who failed. 
Instead of bringing life with his queen, he brought death and disobedience. And the whole Old Testament is looking forward to another Adam. In fact, you could spend time in here looking at some of the references in Psalms. I read Psalm 110, Psalm 8, Psalm 2. These are Psalms that, that are quoted or, or alluded to here because they are yearning for the true king, the true son of God who would come and do what Adam could not. And Jesus comes as that second Adam. He's, he's a king and he's the son of David and he's defeated death and he will one day lay that crown down in adoration before this God. But why does this matter so much? Well, this is the heart of Christianity. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's special. He's the beginning of a new humanity. Resurrection is not just a return to Eden. He's a glorified human body now. He's, he's the king. When I was a kid, I just thought it was so cool that Jesus could walk through walls. That's all I wanted to ask Dad about in the resurrection. That was my theology of the resurrection. Dad, when, when I go to heaven, will I be able to walk through walls? That's what I wanted to know. Um, it, but his, his body is indeed glorified. We don't know exactly what state it will be in that sense. But you see, in that glorified state, he is the promise of more to come for us. Look at verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. You see, there's two resurrections. You can't have one without the other. You have Jesus, who is the first fruits, and because he defeated death and was raised, then everyone who belongs to him will also be raised. And I love that little phrase in verse 23. Those who belong to Christ. How precious. This, this passage is talking about some really deep theology here, the purpose of life, you know, the, the role of Adam going back and destiny, all of that, how you have no hope without the resurrection. And, and Paul takes you through some, some very complex arguments and he says these are good. But he also says the Christian faith goes beyond those arguments. It's in a relationship with this incredible person. Jesus, Messiah. Son of Adam, Son of God, who went to the cross and drank down death because he loved his Father, and he wants you to be a part of his people. And when you give your life to Jesus, you and the church, you're joined to him. And because Jesus has a resurrection life, you do too. You've already received the new heart. You've already received the Holy Spirit. One day we will receive a new body. Listen to what Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the death, dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 4.14 We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And that is an unshakable promise. As one well-known Westminster theologian, Dr. Gaffin, said, talks about the teaching of the resurrection. Because Jesus is the first fruits and we belong to him, these two resurrections are not two separate events. We shouldn't say, oh, there's one resurrection and there's another one, and they're just connected. He says, no, they are so closely connected, we see them as two episodes of the same thing. Two episodes of the same event. And one day, wherever you are, as I tell my soldiers, whether you're on the battlefield or your deathbed, if you belong to Jesus, he will come and pull you through the other side. And that's a promise you can sink your life into. God raised Jesus. I am connected to Jesus. Just as God raised Jesus, he will certainly 
raised me also. Paul says Jesus' resurrection means your resurrection. Okay, but what difference does that make? Well, following what R.C. Sproul would say often, the last few verses right now counts forever. Verses 29 through 34. Now let me get something out of the way in verse 29. What is baptism of the dead? I will tell you. I don't know. Uh, I think that a, a very responsible interpretation, this is from the, the New English Translation notes, is that some Corinthians had gone, undergone this baptism to basically bear witness that the faith of fellow believers who had died before they were baptized um, it was real. So they're basically, we are, we're just, they, they died before they were baptized, and so we're witnessing to their faith by being baptized for them. And Paul here is neither approving this or disapproving. He's not saying this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. He's just saying, look, if this is true, you act like your loved ones live after death because you're baptized on their behalf. You believe they live after death. So therefore, be consistent in your present actions. Live like it matters. You know the resurrection has significance, so live that way. And so I think Paul speaks to two different groups here. First is the casual spectator. You're you're a dabbler, uncommitted. You may know someone who views religion as a smorgasbord. You know, you choose what you like. Um, You know, I I, I like these parts of teaching of Jesus, but but, but the fourfold path is really helpful, and and I, I, I find Buddha very enlightening. You, you love Easter and the hope of the resurrection. That's great for you. I'm glad that helps you. Well, the idea behind this thinking is that religious truth is valuable because it gives you some kind of you know, boost in life. What helps you, though, might not be good for me, right? Maybe I, maybe I need a, a different guru, a different guy. Well, Jesus is raised from the dead. That's a nice thought. It's true for you, not for me. But here's what makes Christianity unique. Every other religious leader died and stayed dead. And for many of them, you can visit their tombs as a holy shrine. But Jesus is alive, and that's a historical claim. It can't be true for me and not true for you. That's that's what Christians have argued throughout the ages. And so, the claim of Christ is that it will only happen... You can only have salvation if you acknowledge that you are like the Adam and Eve here who failed, that you want control of your life, you want to drive, and instead you must bow your knee before Christ, this incredible Son of Man, the King who died for you. And although it's not popular, perhaps it's not as persuasive today, because we have gotten to the point where often we create our own realities and people are sadly okay with internal consistencies, blatant internal consistencies in their belief. So unfortunately, the resurrection may not be as strong as apologetic as it used to be. But you still have to ask people, what do you do with the empty tomb? If you're, if you're having, you know, if you have a chance for a good conversation with someone, what do you do with the empty tomb? And then you can say to them, there, there is more, there is such a strong case for this. I, I encourage you to look into it. Don't be a witness to something incredible and refuse to act on its significance. That's the, that's the call of the gospel. And the second group is Christians where you've lost sight of your hope. Paul says to Christians here, wake up from your drunken sleep. In other words, sober up. 
Why do you need to believe that? Why would he say that in a pagan city where almost everyone else believes differently and thinks that it's foolish to follow a crucified Messiah that you say rose, rose from the dead? Well, one of Satan's main tactics is to, give, is to get you to believe that something is true, but live like it's not. Yes, I know I'm a new creation. Yes, I believe that one day he's going to raise my body. But for whatever reason, instead of being more excited, more active, more spurred on by these realities, I, I feel sluggish, inactive, lulled to sleep today. And this world will tell you and me that this life is all there is. Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow you die. And if perhaps, you know, Jesus is real and you get raised, well, good for you. When you're surrounded by that message every day, it's, it's very easy for it to rub off and, and the excitement of the resurrection to be dull. And so Paul says, wake up. Don't you get it that you belong to Jesus? You have the hope of the resurrection. In verse 19, I, I, I didn't address this at all. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, Paul says, following Jesus in this life is costly. If you claim him as your love and Lord, and you put him at the center of your life, that's going to cost. Think about what it meant for the Christians in Peter's time. Being disowned by your family, losing your job, persecution, beatings, ridicule, even death. We could be grateful that right now we don't suffer anywhere near that persecution, but it still costs being a Christian. And Paul says, if this life is all there is, that's an incredible burden. What a waste of your years on this short earth. Spend it on all yourself, because that's all you got. Now, I guess if helping people floats your boat, then okay, do that. But it's really all about me and how it makes me feel. But you see, if this life is just the beginning, and if you've experienced the sacrificial love of Christ, then living a life with Jesus at the center is not a burden. It's freedom. And Paul says... Right now counts forever. We are willing to give up the goals of this world because they will let you down. They will die and they will stop at the grave. We have a better hope. Let's be honest. We all get sleepy at times. Jesus' disciples were supposed to be providing covering fire in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they fell asleep physically. So how do we wake up? How do we stay awake? And I will just go back to the passage before where you come back daily regrooving yourself in the good news. Come back, as Paul says, that I've delivered to you of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. God does not love us because we try harder. God loved you and so now you live for him. And each day we let ask him, we ask him to have resurrection, hope, and power break into our lives. As, As I said for... Um, the time of prayer this week has been challenging for me. It's, it's been hard. Uh, there's, there's been times I have broken down in tears because I have not been able to play with my son. I have not been feeling well enough, and I had to tell him, no, I can't do that. Uh, there have been times where just 30 minutes of work has been an extreme push, where it would have been just no thought at all. There have been times when I've, I've been up in the middle of the night with, with muscle aches and other things, with a heating pad, and not able to sleep and say, okay, Lord, I guess this is the time when you're calling me to pray. And there's a time when you start walking and your body just spazzes with pain and you just say, I'm done with this. Cut it out, God. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you do? 
Do you get angry? Do you get bitter? Do you decide to pull in? What the Lord's calling me is you come back to this truth. You may not know why you're here right now, but you have a resurrection hope. And in the midst of what you're feeling, and it may not be fun, your life is connected with Christ. And that gives you the ability to make the next step forward. You might not run like you want to. You might stumble. You, you might trip. You might walk. But that's hope. And so arm yourself with the truth. And live out the hope that right now counts forever. Ask God to shake off your sleepiness. The sacrifice is worth it. Don't look at the open grave and witness something incredible, but in your life fail to live out that significance. Please pray with me. Lord, we've all heard many times here, thank you that we've heard the truths of your resurrection. We celebrate this every week. And yet we need every day for you to rub it in, to regroup us, Lord. We ask that we'd be a, be a community that would be quick to point to our resurrection hope. That this week, that you would arm us for the battles that you've given us. That you would give us a joy that would not be connected to our circumstances, but the fact that we are connected to the first fruits, our older brother, or our high king Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.